everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Kelvin Thiel, co-founder of Funding Societies, the largest SME digital financing platform in Southeast Asia, licensed in Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia, and backed by Sequoia, SoftBank, and many more. In four years, Funding Societies has helped finance over 2 million business loans with over 1.4 billion in funding. Kelvin has been selected as one of the top 200 fintech influencers in Asia and appointed co-chairperson for the Marketplace Lending Committee of the Singapore Fintech Association. He has spoken at major conferences such as Lended Shanghai, Boao Hainan, and Money 2020. He has also been featured on Bloomberg, BBC, and Business Times. Prior to this, Kelvin served as a consulting professional at KKR, McKinsey, and Accenture. Kelvin graduated from Harvard Business School and the National University of Singapore and is a certified charter accountant. And now, please join me in a great conversation with Kelvin Tio. Kelvin, thank you for joining us on the Words and Fintech podcast. We're very excited to have you here. Uh, can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Thanks, Miguel. Really appreciate for, for having me here. As a quick introduction, I'm the co-founder of Funding Societies, or in Indonesia, we call ourselves Modalku. Before, so we started Funding Societies in 2015, so we have been around for around five years. As a quick introduction of myself, I started my, I'm a Malaysian who has uh, lived large part of my life in Southeast Asia, started my career with Accenture before moving on to McKinsey for management consulting and some operational transformation, followed by KKR Capstone, um, the operational arm of private equity firm. Decided to go to HBS uh, for, for my master's education, and that's when I chanced upon peer-to-peer lending or peer-to-business lending as, as a business model, and we find that it's potentially impactful for Southeast Asia that can really help to solve the SME financing problem in our region. So while my co-founder and I were still at HBS, we decided to start a company um, and before we know it, um, the, the company grew and uh, where, where we are right now. Very interesting. Did you come into your MBA program knowing that you wanted to start this company or, or any kind of company? Or, or how did the initial idea evolve over time? So my, I met my co-founder who was my classmate at HBS. Uh, his name is Raynaud Vijaya. And both of us come to our master's program thinking that we will start a company. In fact, both of us think that we're just, my co-founder thinks that he will go back to his family business. That's why he chose HBS over Stanford. And I decided I was only trying to take a two-year break after a really long professional services career. I think we started a company really because of the right place and the right time. So the whole idea came about when Peter Thiel came to HBS to, to promote the book Zero to One. Um, we find that and one of his, his quotes really stuck with us, which is that, hey, Asia does not need a lot of innovation. It needs really good execution because there's still so much that can be done, even just by, by pure execution. Uh, we realized that there's also when uh, Landing Club just went IPO, and we realized that, hey, um, this business model may not be exactly suitable for Southeast Asia, but by adapting it to local context, we can really solve the SME financing problem in Southeast Asia. And because it's a huge problem to solve, we are really passionate about the underdogs, um, like SMEs, because we ourselves were underdogs. And that 
by starting the market, we think that is a logical path for us to be number one, even though it was still a very early market. So we decided to start the company while we were still in school. So you, you took a model that we've seen work around the world, which is identify an idea that works in one market and adapt it into another. Um, how challenging was that adaptation? Was it obvious at the beginning or did it require a lot of tweaking? It required quite a bit of tweaking actually because while it's fintech, while it's lending, SME financing is a very localized business and therefore there's quite a bit of tweaking that we have to do. So uh, a few examples would be that when we first started finding societies in Southeast Asia, there was no regulations whatsoever. So, so we had to basically take the lead to engage the regulators and um, study what the other regulations are and kind of proactively regulate ourselves and propose to the government that, hey, this is how I think we should be regulating us and the industry as a whole because uh, it is, these are the key risks that you need to watch out for as an industry and this is how we're mitigating it. So, 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 so there was no regulations we really had to walk through with, with the government um, and that also helps to create a more sustainable industry in Southeast Asia as compared to, say, in other markets like China. Uh, whereby the late regulations has actually created a blow up in the industry, whereas in Southeast Asia, the regulations are still fairly, it's very supportive and favorable for the industry. So that's one. Another example was that I think most of the peer-to-peer -peer lenders were focusing on consumer lending, for example, uh, including the ones in in US. For us, we reckon that there's very high regulatory risk in when it comes to consumer financing. There's very high reputation risk when it comes to consumer financing. Um, and frankly, the household debt in, in Asia is relatively high. So we have pivoted to really focus on SME financing, which clearly has a very different dynamics um, towards uh, consumer financing. And that's how the whole uh, fintech lending industry started in Southeast Asia. So there's quite a bit of initial ideas that you can that can guide our thinking. But at the end of the day, it takes a lot of experimentation as well as adaptation to, to enable it that you work in Southeast Asia. And that's why we find that the fintech lending industry in Southeast Asia has really taken materially different path of evolution and growth compared to say what you've seen in US and Europe and in China. And this is so evident from the other similar industries. For example, ride sharing, e-commerce was uh, so and so forth has initially followed the US European model, but it's over time evolved quite quite differently in Southeast Asia. And how did you approach building the original technology and assembling your initial team? So we when we first started in, in 2015, at that time Reynold and I were still at our we're finishing our first year, entering our second year of, of our MBA, right? And that we had a choice of between dropping out or doing this uh, while we were still in school. But of course, you know, having Asian parents, the, the dropout route is not a cool route, it's the potentially dangerous route. So, so hence we have decided to run out of school. Um, so we kind of adjusted our schedule and classes to enable that we can team as much as possible. For example, we start working at 8 p.m. Uh, Boston time. So it's about 8 a.m. Singapore time. Um, and usually work until 3, 4 a.m. Um, so at Boston time, which is basically 3, 4 p.m. Singapore time, on Southeast Asia time, so that we can actually be as much with the team as possible. Of course, we didn't do very well for classes, but we did pass and graduate, which is, which is great. Um, 
I think when, as we build the, the technology team, unfortunately, not many people want to work for part-time founders, worse so part-time founders who are not physically around. So we decided to hire an external vendor uh, to build out the initial technology. Um, and over time, the founder of that tech firm realized that, hey, there's potentially more promise um, working with us as opposed or for us as opposed to running his own tech firm. So, so we decide, he, he decided to, to shut down his company and bring his team together on board. That makes sense. So you mentioned that not a lot of people wanted to work with part-time founders. I imagine also not a lot of investors wanted to invest in part-time founders. How did you get around that? So I think we were fortunate in the sense that Southeast Asia at that time, the startup market was still very nascent. Consequently, there weren't many second-time founders per se, and there weren't many founders to start off with. So to that extent, by conducting ourselves professionally, by showing early traction of the company, even though we were managing the company through Skype and email, which is kind of the very first version of lockdown, I guess, of uh, in running the company. And by carrying ourselves professionally and showing a good early tractions, I think we were, we were very fortunate to raise our seed round during our summer holidays. That also gives us a lot of ammunition as well as a vote of confidence to continuously drive the company to for further growth. And I think this is so very reflective of the dynamics of Southeast Asia that ultimately I think Southeast Asia fintech lending has a very has a much more favorable environment for success because of three reasons. I think number one is a big problem perhaps compared to other developed markets because financial inclusion and SME financing is a structurally challenging area for banks to solve in the first place. So big problem, relatively favor, favorable like regulations because they have the high side benefit of seeing how the other regulators have managed and therefore be able to adapt to it and, and avoid the mistakes. And I think the third reason is really relatively low competition. So you don't see a lot of competent com players really addressing this, pro uh, this market or this problem. Um, for example, in the case of Malaysia, there's a quota in terms of number of licenses of which it, there's only about 10 plus licenses of which we currently have about 60% market share based on government uh, reports. In the case of Indonesia, you face the same situation. There's not a formal quota, but there's a limited number of licenses. So I think because of big market favor regulations and also relatively low competition, where we first started in and even until now, it's allowed us to grow in a very sustainable way without having to rush for growth, but really try to solve some of the fundamental problems, problems and growth daily. So tell us a little bit about the evolution of the company. Now you've been in business for over four years. You've had tremendous growth. Tell us a little bit of, of how you started, right? But then how you evolve and what are the core products that you're offering today? So we started off the company with very basic product line products, which is like hey, term loans and for tenure of nearly two years, just for SMEs uh, on the borrower side, and then on uh, investor side, primarily crowdfunded by individuals. And as a platform, we were only operating in Singapore. Uh, that was where we were in 2015. I think since then we have grown quite significantly. From a from a company stage perspective, we have just close our Series C with, uh, with, four, with more than 40 million USD committed. On the borrower side, we have expanded our scope to not just serve SMEs, but go as small as sole proprietors. From a product line perspective, we have expanded to not just offer term loans, but term loan, trade finance, and micro loans. 
and further customizing it for both SMEs that are in the local offline economy. So there's some still some level of human touch involved and the online economy. So the digital SMEs, the e-commerce e merchants, the ones that are served by B2B digital platforms. So that's on the SME side. I think on the investor side, we've also expanded our scope from crowdfunding from individuals to crowdfunding from institutions. And subsequently, we added balance sheet lending, both individuals and institutions, basically raising third-party debt from high net worth as well as institutions globally uh, to really diversify our funding sources, which is very critical to help us to tie through this whole COVID pandemic. From a platform perspective, we have also expanded our reach. So currently we are officially licensed in three countries, Singapore, Indonesia, as well as Malaysia. We have a small office at Thailand um, with, with the plans of growing, of expanding across the six key economies in Southeast Asia. And from a competitive landscape perspective, we, we were one of the one of the later comers in the industry, but now we are the market leader in Southeast Asia with our monthly volume of approximately 50 million US dollars, which is of, of new loan origination, which is approximately three times of our closest competitor in Southeast Asia. So the business has really quite matured quite significantly over this period of time. And I think our next steps of evolution is really the acquisition of the Singapore Digital Bank license, of which we are currently bidding for it together with one of a strong consortium, which comprises of Xiaomi, the IoT headset manufacturer in, in China, uh, AMTD, one of the leading investment banks in Asia, as well as Singapore Powers, one of the government-linked companies um, and a monopoly of utilities in Singapore. And the whole idea of having a, the wholesale digital bank license in Singapore is really to serve Southeast Asia, not just Singapore as, a, as an entity. So that's, that's the overall evolution in the last four or five years. That's impressive. Also help us understand the, the value proposition for the client. So I presume this is a digital experience. They don't have to go into any branches. I imagine it's quite efficient. But what else would you say is the value proposition for your clients? And then why are they gravitating towards your services you know, to the degrees uh, that you're seeing today? So there are really three things, access, speed, and flexibility. So when I talk about access, the, the reality is that we are, we are complementing banks, we are not competing with banks. We are giving SMEs either their very first business loan or as a form of top-up to what they already got them from banks, but they find it perhaps insufficient, the amount that the bank is offering perhaps is insufficient due to their lack of collateral, or even offering a product which the banks are not offering. For example, invoice financing. Banks do not only offer that to corporates, they do not offer that to SMEs. So we're really providing a form of access to the SMEs. Of course, flexibility is very important. So we try to customize the offering specific to the SMEs, digitalizing and automating to the extent possible. But in all candor, there's still a human touch. Service Asia is still going through an offline to online movement. So that has also helped us customize to the needs of SMEs, um, taking a hybrid approach towards uh, of human and data in terms of underwriting as opposed to a one-size-fits-all data underwriting approach or a, a very manual and offline human approach. So taking a hybrid approach to, to be flexible. And of course, speed. Oftentimes we see SMEs uh, that are able to get a bank loan, but because they need it by this Friday, as opposed to waiting for two or three weeks, they come to us for, for short-term financing. So it's really providing access, flexibility, as well as speed towards financing for SMEs, as opposed to uh, complementing banks um, in the initial market. And, and who are your main partners? 
Sure, there are really a few groups of major partners. So I think number one is that we do partner with at least one bank, if not uh, two banks in each of the market that we operate in, because we are fundamentally complementing them. So they they really special. They they focus on big loan, long loan, usually three to five years long, and secure loan, usually with collateral. For us, we really specialize in short, below twelve months, small, below two million USD, averaging about two three thousand USD and unsecured loans. So really banks, banks is a big segment. At the online economy perspective, we do partner with the various uh, B2B digital platforms, which includes e-commerce, merch platforms, online marketplaces, and so forth. And from the offline perspective, we work with the various corporate secretaries, accounting firms, as well as government agencies that actually look out for SMEs. So really three big groups of, uh, of partners that we really work very closely with. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your relationship with the regulator. You mentioned quite a unique position that you find yourself in, which is you actually helped draft the rules for this specific activity. How has that relationship evolved over time with the regulator? And is there a particular framework of regulation that you based yourself on maybe a country? Curious to hear more about that. Sure. I think I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that we draft the regulations for the regulators, but I think we are very fortunate that they are willing to listen to some of our recommendations or suggestions for the regulations, and, right. and they ultimately make the decision themselves. I think we have been very fortunate that because we are among the earlier players, and thanks to some of our early traction as well as our professional pedigree, uh, they were willing to lend a listening ear to us. And I think how we approach it is taking both. Uh, by, by referencing some of the overseas regulations. So perhaps most notable would, would be the ones from the UK and to a smaller extent, uh, Hong Kong, because of a lot of Southeast Asian countries are Commonwealth countries, but at the same time taking a very risk-based approach that, hey, we want to address this particular risk in industry, as opposed to taking the approach of, hey, because others do that, therefore we should do that blindly, not knowing why they have done it. So really by referencing on regulations overseas and then taking a localized risk-based approach, that has helped us to gain some traction uh, with the regulators. So earlier in the interview, you implied that when you started, there weren't too many entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia but I assume that that has changed. How has the, specifically the FinTech entrepreneurial landscape uh, evolved over time? I think overall in the FinTech landscape has grown quite significantly in 2015. So just for context, when 2015 started, at 2015, there was hardly any FinTech players and that the Monetary Authority of Singapore only came out with the very first FinTech Award in 2016, and we're very fortunate to be among the winners of that. So ever since then, the various verticals have gradually grown and matured. So for example, the lending vertical, they are, they are market leaders themselves. So, so it's the payment vertical, uh, insurtech vertical, and to an extent, wealth management as well. So there are gradual early market leaders or established market leaders in each of the vertical. Having said that, it is not a situation where there are tons of players per se. So in the case of the lending vertical, there's quite a bit of industrial consolidation that's already gone on, even though there aren't that many players to start off with. And probably because in Southeast Asia, it's a very fragmented market. So it's not very easy for 
for players to go regional in the first place. And we are very fortunate to be the only player that has that has license in more than one country. Same applies to payments, insurtech and wealth management per se. So the industry has kind of consolidated with early leaders, but there still aren't many players per se um, in, in the market in the region. And how big is uh, funding societies in terms of people these days? We are licensed in three countries, but physically present in four. So Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and then an up-and-coming Thailand. So in total, we have 350 people across the four countries. And I imagine one of the biggest challenges is uh, how to recruit the best talent, right? Mm -hmm. What's your approach to finding new talent and then recruiting new employees? Sure, I think initially it was challenging because not many people are willing to work for startups. So oftentimes the, the interview will be really excited about joining up at the end of the interview and after speaking to the spouse, it suddenly became a pretty bad idea to join a startup. So that was fairly common when in the early days. I think we're very fortunate to be able to attract excellent talent in through a few ways. I think number one was really track record. I think as we fundraise round after round and expand physical uh, media an established presence in each of the market as the market leader. And having shareholders like Sequoia and SoftBank, of course, did not hurt in terms of overall fundraising as well. So, so it did not hurt in terms of overall recruiting. And as a result, that short record allowed us to attract better and better talent, including companies, uh, including talent from huge unicorns or established companies. So number one, track record. I think number two is that we try to, to showcase our core values and culture in our interview process. So core values and culture is something that's very important to us. Um, which uh, Raynon and I, we codified it since 2016 and try to reinforce it in each stage of the company's development. So by building a very st a strong culture, it kind of naturally self-selects that folks who think that this is a suitable place for them, they will, they will, they will stay with us, they will join. Um, if it's not, um, they will naturally leave because it, it impacts your how you do work and how people work with each other quite significantly. And if it's not something for you, it may you feel it very quickly. I think the third thing is really strengthening in terms of our talent team as well as interviews and, and, and recruitment. We, we Over the years, we did we have made quite a few mistakes and, and lessons um, ourselves in terms of building up a professional team, in terms of recruiting for senior as well as junior higher, so and so forth, in terms of training as well. So it's something that we've refined over time. And I think we're quite fortunate that we're currently in a pretty good spot in terms of having very good senior leaders who have joined us from external industries and have naturalized and really assimilated into our culture and company, as well as uh, internally groomed talent that have joined us perhaps young but promising and have really developed into uh, young leaders or, or middle, middle management leaders. You mentioned core values. Would you mind expanding on society's core values? So there are really a few key core values that are very important to Reno and I, and core values typically follows oftentimes the personalities of co-founders. I think so the few key core values is number one, focus on impact. I think both company impact, but also social impact to the extent possible. And of course, from a personal level perspective, very focusing on very, being very efficient, being very productive, that's really a big part of focus on impact. Um, and that's also why we've started our, uh, the company and call ourselves funding societies. I think that's number one. Number two is really test measure act. So it's really experimental culture that, hey, because it's a very new industry, the reality is that no one knows the answer fully. Even if you come from banks, really the bank model does not really apply to, to our context. So that's why we have a very diverse team from both fintech, 
banking as well as consulting, and of course other industries as well to really take a very data-driven approach to towards figuring out the solution. Hence, we say test, measure, and act. So the third one is grow relentlessly, and that's really a whole spirit of continuously learning and growing. So I think one thing that is very important to us is that no matter how good you are, wherever that you know are probably going to be obsolete within a few few months' time. Um, and that's why I think it's very important for us to keep growing and, and learning along the way because rather than saying that, hey, this is how it has been done in the past or this is how good I was previously, right? So really grow relentlessly, that is extremely important to us. I think the third, fourth one is really serve with obsession. I think Raynaud and I really goes by the whole servant leadership approach, right? That if I'm going to do something, or if I'm going to ask a team to do something, we need to role model ourselves or we role model ourselves. And the whole idea is not about serve. I think everyone does that. Many, many companies do that. But really, the keyword is obsession, right? Going above and beyond, going the extra mile. And that applies to serving each other, serving the customers, serving our society and community. Um, I think the final one is really enable teamwork and disable politics. And of course, the keyword is actively enabling, actively disabling. Because I don't think that any company will say, hey, I enjoy, I, team work is not important or I encourage politics. Of course, no companies will do that. But to us, the key, work, key part is really actively enabling, actively disabling. Um, seeing that a wrong is being done and not calling out is not good enough, you really need to actively address it uh, or at least escalate it because we are working in a very cross-functional environment with multiple countries and multiple functions. Um, it's very easy to, to, for silos to form if you're not careful. So hence, actively enabling uh, teamwork to help each other to work together as a team, as well as actively killing off politics. I think that's extremely important. So those are five core values that we, that we have. Super interesting. And I imagine it only becomes uh, more challenging to keep enforcing these values as you grow and as you scale as a company. Yeah, it is, it is challenging. In fact, we just went through a relatively difficult episode when a company has scaled from, within each of the office, has scaled from 50 to 150. Or some officers have scaled from 20, 30 to 60, 70. Because usually you do see uh, organizational behavior change when you cross the 50 mark and we cross the 100 or 150 mark within each of the, each of the office. So we've just been through that and um, also been through a difficult phase of hiring senior external leaders, some have worked out well, some have not worked out well because of their past experiences and whatnot. So it is a continuously improvement process and continuously maintaining process. I think a few things that we have learned quite from those lessons, I think number one is that being very careful and stringent in terms of culture hiring, I think that's very, very important. And the key lesson that we learned here is really focusing more, not just on the top of the iceberg CV and exhibited behaviors, but really observing the bottom of the iceberg uh, personalities of individuals and characters. I think that's important, um, which oftentimes is what a, a lot of companies or what we ourselves miss before this. So really bottom of the iceberg learnings. I think that's number one. So number two is really um, having very realistic expectations towards external senior hires and assimilating them. So there's this common mistake that we see uh, for ourselves and other startups is that, hey, when you finally hire someone from Fortune 500 or senior executives from a big company, you felt very humble and as if they are saviors that are here to bring the company to the next level, who as is they are really here to do us a favor to grace the company. And that actually clouds a judgment in terms of, hey, whether this person is actually suitable for the company. So one major lesson we've learned is that, hey, be very realistic that even if that every senior external hires brings together with the execution risk because what they have known know in their previous environment may not be suitable for 
the company's context, as well as cultural risk um, that it may be a not a right fit. So having very realistic expectations, making sure that we always have a junior person as part of the interview mix because that's when people's behavior shows when there's a power distance um, and also actively assimilating them into our organization that's a very important lesson we've learned and i think the third one is actively grooming internal talent um, until you have ability to create new talents you will almost always rely on external talent which is very dangerous so constantly grooming internal talent which is which it's a great way to retain team members because you you actively engage them, but also to strengthen the core of the organization. I think that's very, very important. So those were three key lessons that has helped us to continuously to reinforce our culture and values, but also build a strong team. Let's talk a little bit about the current situation that we're experiencing. You know, we're going through a global pandemic. It has affected every single country on earth every single person and every single company. Uh, How has it affected you? And and particularly, how has it affected your clients? Because you are serving those most impacted clients in many cases, I imagine. So I think COVID uh, has clearly impacted everyone and including us. Um, I think we are, to be fair, I think we are relatively fortunate compared to many other industries and many other peers within the market for so if I just break it down in terms of overall implications, there are really three main implications here for a two-sided platform like ours. So on the borrower side or the SME side, we see an increase in demand, but at the same time also an increase in default risk. I think we're very fortunate that because we specialize and focus only on short-term financing, so averaging 10 or 5 to 6 months, or in the case of Indonesia, one to two months, we're quite close to the money and we can actually adjust our credit underwriting quite quickly. So what we do see an increase in delinquency and default, I think relative to the industry, we are still we are a relatively fortunate paid space and fortunate level. So that's on the SME default side. I think on the investor side or lender side, a, a major uh, rising risk is credit crunch. So basically investors conserving cash, not investing. Um, because they are worried about the future or worried about the, the portfolio performance. I think uh, so far we do see some slowdown in terms of crowdfunding, but because we've actively diversified our funding sources to include balance lending institutions, so and so far, we've been able to maintain our funding sources relatively well. And that has enabled us to continuously lend. But I think from a platform side, what we've done is that we have preemptively increase the level of selectiveness in our underwriting, really focusing on what we call the whitelist industry that are less impacted by COVID-19, be a lot more stringent in the grey one, and of course, shying away from the blacklist or the redlist industries that are directly impacted by COVID. And out of the overall portfolio of loans, I think less than 5% are directly impacted by COVID, and less than 20% that are indirectly impacted by COVID. So, so far, we've been quite fortunate on that front. That has enabled us to be to continuously lending, albeit at a much lower level compared to before. So averaging about 35 million USD now, as opposed to 50 before COVID. But our revenue has only fallen marginally because we have been able to adjust our pricing accordingly. I think we're also very fortunate to raise our Series C right before the pandemic hit in its full bloom. That has also enabled us to maintain a healthy runway over this period of time. So our goal is really to take this opportunity this crisis as an opportunity to really streamline our business to, and to bring us closer towards profitability. What we notice is that in other, players in other markets um, seem to struggle to become to turn profitable even with a loan book of billions in dollars. I think for, for Southeast Asia, thanks to a favorable market condition, uh, environment, macro environment in general, 
as well as the work that has been done, we do think that we can bring even by the end of next year with a loan book of only 300 million, maybe 400 million USD uh, at, a, at a conservative side. Um, and that's what we are working towards. And how has your relationship with the government developed throughout the pandemic? Strengthened uh, meaningfully during this period of time. So, to the regulators, there are really two key two key considerations. One is that hey, will the fintech players to survive? And another is that for the ones that are surviving, we noticed that banks may not be the best channel towards providing support to the SMEs. How should we be working with them? And both conversations have played out quite towards in our favor because on the very first scenario, we have managed to raise a very meaningful round compared to the other players and therefore they're kind of betting on us. On the second area, so the governments are actually working towards reverse to see how can we actually potentially channel funds to the SMEs. One example is the government of Malaysia. As part of the, the government uh, fund, what they've done is that they're co-investing into each SMEs together with us. So for, for every $2 of loans that we give out to an SME, they're backing $1 together with us. So we see this crisis as a way for us to actually, uh, as an opportunity for us to actually move mainstream by working even closer to the government. And this crisis has so enabled us to prove our credit model to an extent. So one of the key questions that fintechs like us always get, get asked is that, hey, you've experienced a primary a bull run, therefore your credit record is very good. Um, how do we know whether we will perform well in a, in a financial crisis? And the fact that our portfolio has been holding up relatively well compared to the other fintech players and potentially banks, we believe that by tying through this period well, um, we actually ride out even stronger um, compared to before. That's impressive. Sounds great, actually. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, are also aspiring founders and fintech operators as well. Do you have any advice, any words of wisdom for people considering uh, entering entrepreneurship? Sure. I think advice is a very big word, but I think what I can share how our thought process has been in terms of deciding to, to start funding societies. The reality is that it wasn't, we did not decide to start a company, but rather we kind of gravi- found ourselves gravitating into, into doing that. Because, But I think the whole consideration framework that we use on whether to officially plunge into it or not is really that before we go all in on that, we were actively considering three criteria before deciding to go full all in. Um, I think number one is really, of course, passion, right? That we just found ourselves spending more and more time into this and before we know it, any company start. The nature of the next time is to start a company. So it's really passion and everyone say talks about it, but I think the decisive fact uh, consideration is that passion, even when the time is going hard or there's no, there's very little hope that things will work out well. And that's the level of passion I think that's, that's necessary. That's one. Number two is really solving a big problem. We thought that it's only worthwhile if I'm solving a big problem for the world as opposed to a small problem. But I think the reality is that for the other listeners, you need not have to change the world whatsoever. If for, to become a founder, you can also start a small SME and that's to qualify as a founder or as an SME owner. But I think the key of this is really that you must be solving a bucket problem for others. I think the third one is that, that there was a reason half to be number one. Even though before we started, we kind of studied the key success factors of the industry and we realized that, hey, there's a good chance that we can be number one even before we have started. And that's why I started the company. I guess a principle for others or implication for listeners may be that you need not be number one, but you need to have a competitive advantage and niche that you are serving. So the three things that we actively considered before moving in full-time on society societies. 
Kelvin, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, we always like to ask our guests about some of their personal hobbies and how they fill their time outside of work. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that side. Frankly, there aren't a lot of time outside of work, but I think three things I spend most of my time with. I think number one is family, number two is chess, and number three is uh, running. I think that I try to stay to keep a relatively holistic life, even though it's extremely difficult as a founder. But I think by keeping that three parts very closely intact during even while we were starting a company or running the company, I think that's, that helps to keep me balanced. Great. Well, thanks again, Kelvin. Uh, I know I have learned a lot and I know the audience will definitely be happy to listen to this conversation. You're always welcome to visit us and thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.